This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Steve Wallace, a systems innovation scientist at the Defense Information Systems Agency. Steve, welcome to the program. Morning. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by Sherry Sokol, the Cloud-Based Internet Isolation Program Manager. Sherry, welcome to the program as well. Hi, thank you for having me. So we're talking a little different today. This is not, uh, you guys are not CIOs per se, but we got a lot to talk about in the technology world and things that CIOs should be paying attention to and should be caring about. So let's start at the very beginning. We're talking about the Cloud-Based Internet Isolation Program, the CBII. Let's just start at the beginning. Uh, Steve, this is something you and I have talked about over the years. I know this is something that DIS has been working on. I want to go back to 2016. So give me a little bit of what is the CBII program and, and what does it entail? CBII is something we're very excited about. So you're right, it, it goes back several years. And it was the recognition of the fact that the way that we try to defend the endpoint and, and the browser as a whole, there's a lot of challenges that go along with that. We have a lot of devices in the middle of the conversations between the browser and the uh, and the service that the browser is trying to get to. And the modern, modern web page is way more than what it used to be. For instance, when you just go to a simple search page or a news page or something like that, it's typically around six to 8,000 lines of code that are downloaded to that endpoint and then processed by that browser, which means that there's a device along the wire that's looking at that 6,000 lines of code to see if there's anything malicious in it, to see if there's anything bad in it, that kind of thing. And so that's very processor intensive. That that's, you know, it's only growing, it's not getting smaller. The typical web browser, is doing much more than it was even just five or 10 years ago. So we need to look at things differently. You know, another aspect of it is if you look at just say again, a typical news site or something like that, you're not just talking to that particular site. You're also talking to all of their advertising networks and, you know, statistics networks and those kinds of things. And we've seen 50, 60, 70 other domains that one page load is talking to at one time. So it's, it's doing a tremendous amount of work in the background. So we started looking at this differently. How can we attack this problem? And it led us down the road of browser isolation. So yeah, we, we probably started three to four years ago. The technology was pretty much in its infancy. We looked at a bunch of different iterations of it. And what we landed on uh, was something that we wanted uh, it to be not terribly impactful on the user's experience. We wanted the user to have a standard you know, experience just like they're, they're traditionally used to, but then offer a, a very different way of protecting it. So what we're doing is when the user is browsing the web, they get a traditional view like they always get. But what's actually happening is, is that browsing session is actually being rendered out in a commercial provider outside of our network. And then a view of that browsing activity is brought back to the user. So they don't, they don't really perceive any difference in the performance. In fact, we've, we've actually, as part of our prototype, heard that you know, there's a tremendous improvement in terms of performance because we've changed you know, the, the way that those bits are flowing to the endpoint. So they're actually seeing, in many cases, improvements in their performance without any of that uh, you know, potentially malicious code or anything like that coming back to the endpoint. That's fascinating. I guess nobody really thinks about how dangerous, quote unquote, dangerous the browser is. But when you, when you lay it out in those terms, it's six to 8,000 lines of code are downloaded, you know, 50, 60, 70 domains just hitting one page. Any of those domains could be malicious. Any of those domains, any of those pieces of code could have malware in it. And, and is, is 
at what point did you start seeing that uptick in malicious code or, or dangers or threats coming from the browser or it's always been there and we're just now able to do something about it? It's definitely picked up steam and it's, it's not, it's, it's not even just users clicking on things, you know, potentially accidentally or something like that. It's also phishing emails, right? So the user gets an email, the URL looks close to being right. They innocently click on it or copy it into their browser. And then, you know, we, we have an issue with something like this. If that happens, the issue occurs outside of the network and nothing's ever brought back to the endpoint. Gardner estimates that it's about 70% of all endpoint intrusions are done through the browser. So, so really the, the browser is the, the, the predominant portal um, for bad things to, to occur on the endpoint. I think one other thing that we've seen was in the beginning of this calendar year, the zero day vulnerabilities on the browser. And because we had CBII, that didn't impact our users. Right. I mean, if you can imagine taking a, a, an organization as large as the Department of Defense and that ability to upgrade its browser in a matter of days and not have these zero days that, that, that Sherry's referring to, it's a huge paradigm shift, right? You, you don't have to deal with, well, how many versions of Internet Explorer or Firefox or Chrome am I running? Our presence to the outside world now is, is one, and it's the most up-to-date version of the browsing engine. So you're avoiding a lot of the zero days. You still have to maintain your, your stuff internally, but it definitely creates the, a separation there that is, that is going to be a, a big deal for us going forward. Sherry, walk me through, since you're the program manager of CBII, walk me through the pilot, and then we'll move into the production and, and why you guys decided it was ready for production. But walk me through how you piloted this. The pilot was a 100,000 user test prototype that used our mission partners across DOD. So it wasn't just DISA testing, it was also you know Navy and Air Force and bunches of other groups, uh, DHA, DCSA and they provided feedback on one of two platforms that they were on. So there was a shift from two platforms to one platform in production, but it was that feedback and our own experiences that really made the prototype come alive and shaped the requirements and what we have in production to meet the needs of all of DOD. And that's made I think, a better solution for the entire department, and it's our readiness and security. I think if I can tag on to that, one of our going-in tenants to the whole prototype was we didn't want to do it in the the comfy confines of our lab or something like that. We wanted it to be a real-world experience across the department because the department is a very federated IT infrastructure. We We wanted to be able to see how something like this performs across the board. And, and this technology space is, is fairly new. There's not a lot of complete deployments at this point. There's a lot of organizations looking at it and considering it. It's definitely, just during the time that we've looked at it, it has start, started to grow pretty dramatically. But that was one of the reasons why, to Sherry's point, we went with two vendors out of the gate, which was fairly atypical for, for this type of thing. We would typically go with one prototype it, and then potentially move into production. We wanted to, though, because we wanted to really see how these different vendors worked in production scenarios. So that was very beneficial to us, I think, in the end. It, it created a, a bit more work on, on Sherry and the team. Uh, but, but in the end, I think it, it definitely bore the fruit because we saw things that likely we wouldn't have seen otherwise. Yeah, I think the amount we learned 
by having that variety in the use cases and scenarios was huge. And we would not have otherwise learned things like that in a lab and, you know, just a DISA silo. So it was about 100,000 users for the pilot. It was over six months, it was over a year. As I mentioned, Steve and I talked about this probably in 2018. And, and Steve, you mentioned this at other other events over the last you know, year or so. Uh, or, and then how, how was it tested? Walk me through maybe some of the prototype of approaches. It just was put on and said, go. And then you looked at the logs or, or how's it, how did it work? The period was for one year. We went a little bit past that because we were trying to get some of the contractual things done. The intent of the prototype was for one year. 100,000 users, so 50,000 users in, uh, for each vendor. And then we took and we randomly assigned or worked with the different groups within the department and then randomly assigned them to you know, each vendor's platform in order to try to get. We didn't split any organizations across any platforms, but we, you know, this organization went here and that organization went there. But we got a, a pretty wide variety of, of folks. And what actually, when, when the pandemic hit, it brought it to a whole new level. So what we saw then with the pandemic is, you know, we were moving along and, and things were going pretty well, but we saw, you know, dramatically increased demand from our mission partners in this capability. And for us inside of DISA, I can, from our own numbers and, and what we've seen, just in bandwidth savings, take, we'll talk about the security benefits in a second, but the bandwidth savings alone we were able to remove about 50% of the bandwidth off of our VPNs because we were no longer backhauling that traffic into the organization just to route it back out to the internet. We were able to send it directly to the vendors from the endpoint and, and not have to sort of hairpin that traffic back in through the, through the network. So big improvements there. Our mission partners that jumped on board, they were able to use their browsers in different ways than they had ever previously used him in that they were they were doing a lot more with the outside world and so they needed better performance they needed more reliable performance and they were definitely they're, they're seeing that here in terms of security what we saw during the prototype we saw a, a variety of things so from data loss prevention right if you really think about this technology you know traditional proxies and firewalls and that kind of thing they sit in the middle of the traffic right from the endpoint then you have that that proxy and then you have the service on the other side so that proxy is constantly trying to determine what is going on with that user session and not just one user but thousands of users with a system like this we've really pushed the ability to look back and, and to the actual browser since we're hosting the browser now we see a much different view of what the user is doing. So we, we have a, a very strong connection or you know, a very strong association with the user who's making the actions. But then things like data loss prevention and, and those kinds of techniques become far easier and, and easier to deal with. And we, we can do more sophisticated things in, sort of, in terms of DLP than we could previously do. Another side to it is downloads. So with CBII, we can actually, and what we do is every document that a user clicks on is remotely rendered. So a few years ago, PDFs were all the rage in terms of zero days. So what happens is, is a user clicks on a PDF, it's remotely rendered, and they're given an image of that PDF document, and they can go through it, or a Word document, or an Excel document, that it's remotely rendered. And what we've seen is, we've seen a 70% reduction 
in terms of things that the users are downloading to the endpoint, because oftentimes users are just clicking on something, reading it and moving on. Um, so we're not bringing that into the network anymore. That's staying on the outside. So we don't have those kinds of concerns, which has been a dramatic, uh, dramatic shift for us. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's been pretty exciting what we've seen out of the prototype and, and going back to, to Sherry's point earlier about the zero days, you know, there were a number of zero days that came out in the browsers and, and that wasn't a concern for the users that were behind CBII. It, it just was a non-issue at that point. There's a lot of amazing statistics there. So, but let, let me just back up for one thing. So the traffic off the VPN, explain a little bit more about that because where people would, would have to go out to the internet, hit a site, that, that, that data would have to come back to like a tick basically. I know you guys don't use tick, you use cloud access points or, and, and they'd have to get put through your, this, this software to say, okay, it, there's no malware or we think it's fine. And then it would go back to the user at that point. And, that, and that's the traffic that it was, that's why you had this backhauling this latency potential too. I, I may be simplifying it, but do I have it kind of right? No, you, you absolutely have it right. It's, it's like telling somebody to get from Washington to New York by way of Chicago, right? So, so what we would tip it traditionally do is, you know, I would, I would from my browser, I want to go to the internet. Uh, but what I'm first thing I'm going to do in a VPN situation is I'm going to backhaul it into the traditional network and then I'm going to send it back out through that tick or that internet access point, have it inspected, and then send it, send it on its way. In this scenario, we are sending it directly from the user's endpoint to the CBII service, which is hosted around the world and you know, has many different points of entry to that service and then on to the, to the uh, site that the user is trying to get. Downloads still take the traditional path so we can do some additional inspection, but there's also an inspection done at CBII as well in terms of antivirus detonation and, and those kinds of things. So yeah, we, we see a dramatic improvement in the user's performance. Stephen, Sherry, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue to look into some of these results of the pilot and then move into the production and what that actually means. My guests today are Steve Wallace, the systems innovation scientist at the Defense Information Systems Agency, and Sherry Sokol, the cloud-based internet isolation program manager also at DISA. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Steve Wallace, the systems innovation scientist at the Defense Information Systems Agency, and Sherry Sokol, the cloud-based internet isolation program manager also at DISA. The first part of the segment, we talked about the CBI program, how it works, what, what kind of results you guys found from the pilot. And I want to kind of continue to that, that path a little bit because one of the other statistics, Steve, you brought up last segment was a 70% reduction in terms of downloading to the endpoint. And as someone who probably downloads a lot to my endpoints, as someone who probably spends a lot of time looking at a PDF, moving on, looking at a Word document and moving on, I didn't realize the threat behind that. I should probably clear my download folder more often, but but walk me through why this was a big deal from this pilot pers perspective and how it increased the security for DISA and other agencies within DOD. This was definitely one of the cornerstones as we went into the prototype is how do we change the dynamic with respect to what gets downloaded to the endpoint. We see not just users accidentally going to a malicious site or downloading something malicious. We also see it through phishing attacks where, you know, there's a there's a URL embedded in the in the email and the user clicks it innocently enough and then they attempt to download a, a piece of malware from there. But what this capability does is 
One, it will remotely render uh, any one of you know, many different file types uh, that a user may, may attempt to download. But then it can also, on top of that, so they remotely render, if they need it, and if they need to download it, they can either choose a safe download, where what happens is, is the file is actually recreated as a fresh PDF, and any macros or, or embedded content and that kind of thing are removed and flattened, and then that that file is then downloaded to the user's endpoint, or they can download the original. And they, we're still in the process of tuning some of that functionality, but we have the the ability to go even further and, and force the use of safe downloads if, if that's something that we choose to do. But yeah, I mean, 70% reduction in what's coming to the endpoint with the option that if you really need it, it's one extra click to download that file was really something that was intriguing to us. And you can go further and you can go into different file types. They don't necessarily get rendered, but things like RPMs, you know, from, from Linux RPMs and, and uh, executable files, batch files, those kinds of things, we can start to use an identity-driven concept now to say who can download what. So maybe your privileged users, they need to download you know, these uh, executables or batch files or whatever, but your regular general run-of-the-mill users really probably shouldn't be doing that as part of their day. We can start to use an identity construct behind that and the attributes associated with that to then empower those users or you know, disallow other users from you know, downloading certain content onto the endpoints. We can we can take a much more granular approach than what was ever possible before. And I think that also applies not just to downloading, but to browsing as well. Yeah. And in addition to having that granular control as to who can go to something and not go to something, there's also a read-only option. Someone, you know, uh, perhaps a sysadmin, you know, be able to go to a site and get information but not do much in the way of interaction with that site that might be more dangerous for that type of user. That's great, Sherry. I, I didn't remember that one. That was another really interesting prospect as we started digging into these technologies is that traditionally it's either block or allow, right? It's a, it's a binary decision. I'm either going to allow you or I'm not. We're able to introduce a third option. So perhaps this site that, that the user's attempting to visit doesn't have a long history, doesn't have much behind it, but we haven't seen anything malicious out of it yet. Maybe we give that to them in a read-only fashion where they can't enter you know, usernames and passwords if it's a phishing type site or, or looking for credentials or social security numbers or anything like that. We can sort of change their interaction a little bit further if we're not quite sure where you know, the, the history or the pedigree of a particular site. That was, that was definitely a big, big thing for us as well. So this, just to be maybe put a finer point on it, this is below, as you talked about, Steve, the binary decision block or allow, meaning if I want to go to a site, gambling site, that's probably going to be blocked. But if I wanted to watch March Madness, even though we didn't have it this year, maybe that wouldn't be blocked. And Or if you do block all of CBS Sports or all of ESPN, then it's okay, well, maybe there is a reason why uh, someone in the Intel world would need access to ESPN for research, for open source research. So, but now you can say, okay, well, everyone can have access to ESPN, but you can't watch a video. You can just read what's there. That, that adds an additional layer. Yeah, it, it definitely gives us a, a little bit more fine grained control. Of, and it's more about the defense and not 
allowing the user to end up in a place that's potentially trying to harvest credentials or something like that. The demonstration that we've seen from other vendors is, you know, potentially there's a login page that gets a banking login page or something like that that gets thrown up that the URL looked awfully close. Maybe it was one letter off and the user isn't paying close enough attention, goes to the site and they, they start entering credentials. And we can prevent something like that now because we know that this site doesn't have a, a, you know, a pedigree behind it. It hasn't been around very long. And so we don't trust it. So we're going to let you see it, um, but we probably don't want you to interact with it because it may be dangerous. So I brought up March Madness and, and the other piece of this is people stream a lot of videos. We, we, you know, it's, it's whether it's not basketball season or not, but is that the other piece that this can help with is just addressing some of that network traffic and, and the high bandwidth needs? Absolutely. So we had two things that we wanted to accomplish. We wanted to improve security, which we've talked a bit about, uh, but we also wanted to improve bandwidth utilization. And we worked very closely with the vendors to do a number of things in terms of the bandwidth optimization to use less bandwidth, but also not terribly alter the user's experience either. So there's, there's things that we've instituted, things, let's just say, we'll use YouTube as the example. And what these technologies can do is they can tell when a user is active on, what partic- uh, on a particular tab. And so you may have a user that's streaming something in the background of one tab, but they're actually not focused on that tab. They're in another one, but they're just listening to the content. Traditionally, you know, a regular browser setup would just play the full high definition video in the background, and you're completely wasting that bandwidth. You know, when you think about the size difference, it's it's about a 4X difference from a, a 480p video to a 1080p video. You know, so it's a pretty dramatic change in terms of size. So what we've been able to do is when the technology detects that you've moved to a different tab or your focus is on a different tab, it actually declares a bandwidth issue to the site so the site reduces the, the video quality, keeps the audio going, but dramatically reduces that video quality. So then we're not streaming all of that video or uh, as high quality video to the endpoint. We can you know, dramatically drop off the amount of data that's flowing there. So it's, it, it is, it, and especially when we start talking about, it's not just, at DISA we, we run the core, um, but it's not even just about the core, it's about the circuits as you move further and further and further out within the organizations. If we can take the strain off of those, especially as these organizations start to look more at software as a service and that kind of thing, and they're, they're moving things out of their localized data centers, the amount of available bandwidth on those circuits as we move further out becomes critical. All right, there's a lot more to dig into here. I definitely want to hear about what the production is going to look like, but let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. I guess they are Steve Wallace the systems innovation scientist at the Defense Information Systems Agency, and Sherry Sokol, the cloud-based internet isolation program manager, also at DISA. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Steve Wallace, the systems innovation scientist at the Defense Information Systems Agency, and Sherry Sokol, the cloud-based internet isolation program manager, also at DISA. Sherry, talk a little bit about the production. First of all, the decision to go with an OTA is interesting for many reasons. You don't hear a lot of production OTAs. You hear a lot of pilot OTAs, but you guys decided to go with the production side. Talk to me about that decision. Because we have a successful prototype OTA, which is awesome. We were able to then segue and meet the current needs of DOD rapidly and go into a production OTA, which also enables us the flexibility to work with the vendor 
and really refine and shape the solution that we're coming up with to meet all the needs that our mission partners have as they change in this kind of COVID environment right now. We've seen a lot of shifting and changing needs, a lot of different use cases, some you know high latency, low bandwidth, and you know to further the optimization that we're already doing. You know what else can we do as more and more networks are stressed and that there are other situations coming up that we're able to have that flexibility in production as well as in uh, as well as what we had in the prototype. Was there also a time issue here? This is security, right? I mean, this is something as Steve laid it out earlier on, the 68,000 lines of code, 60, 70 domains per page. I mean, this is a, a one of those things where if you had to wait six months or a year to get this on, you know, go through the process of a, of a typical FAR-based acquisition, and even if you used a government-wide acquisition type contract, you're still talking about three to six months. Was, was speed the other p- reason why OT, the OTA production contract made, made sense? Absolutely. You know, since we had competitively bid and had a successful outcome with our prototype, it enabled us to segue into production. So as we realized with COVID, we were quickly going from our 100,000 user test pilot to everyone in DOD wants on. We wanted to be able to meet those needs and have the department meet its readiness needs. And being able to segue to a prototype from prototype to production really helped, you know, speed things along with that. It's really been an amazing journey from the the start, even in the early days when we were trying to think through, did we want to go far? Did we want to go OTA? And, and at that point when we were starting down the road, you know, DISA was just, uh, was just about to get its uh, authority, its other transactional authority. And so we made that decision then that we wanted to go in that direction. And there was some concern. This was a large one to come right out of the gate with. This was a, a really large OTA, especially the, the one thing that, that Sherry and I haven't pointed out is our team is, is fairly new. We, the Emerging Technology Group, we, we really were established about a year and a half ago. So some of this work predates that, but this is the first production prototype to come out of our team, but, and also the first, you know, production OTA to come out of this. And, and it afforded us a lot more collaboration with the vendors as we went through it. And it allowed us to evolve and continually evolve the product so we were able to get to that final award. And so it was the, the OTA process was a huge, huge benefit to us. Uh, I am now a, a very much a proponent of using it. It's not for it's not for every situation. We have to be careful that, you know, we don't try to, to shove everything into an OTA. But this one was, in my opinion, an excellent example of, of how we can leverage OTAs uh, in order to get things done. What does the production look like? What's the rollout plan? How many people are going to get it? What's the timeline? Give me all the details about what production is. Production is for the entire Department of Defense. So the the target all along has been, there's approximately three and a half million users in the Department of Defense. Um, So our target is, is every one of them. Now, there are people that, you know, may not live necessarily on the network or have access to DoD systems. So, so that number will, will, will vary a little bit, uh, but the intent is the entire department. So, uh, and what's been really, really uh, interesting about all of this is as we've worked through and since we had most of the department or representation for most of the department in the prototype, they're already aware and, and there's still a bit more to be learned, but they're already aware of what we're trying to do. 
and the benefits of it and that kind of thing. So there's actually a, a high degree of interest from across the department and, and many different groups within the department to move on to the capability. So the, the goal right now is we are in the process and, and Sherry and team are working very hard to migrate our prototype from the two vendors down to the one. And then the idea is to start to scale from there. And, and we're going to work with um, our sister agency, JFHQ Doden, through the traditional orders process and that kind of thing to start orderly moving different parts of the department onto the system. Our goal is is somewhere on the order of about two years to migrate the, the department on. And that's based on, you know, what we've done with other capabilities and deploying it out across. There are some nuances that we've learned and that played a, a vital role in the prototype itself. There's some nuances in everybody's network. And I think one of the biggest things that, that folks learn, well, one of the large things I should say, that folks learn during the, the prototypes is within their own networks where they have their own proxies and their own you know, uh, defense capabilities, that kind of thing, those things need to evolve as well because they may not play the same role going forward as, as what, they, you know, what they had in the past. The other side too is the way that we're deploying this in a sort of structured tenant model is that the organizations actually, they, they'll inherit a set of rules you know, from, the, from the enterprise, but then they can tailor rule sets for their user base and, and, and their populations uh, if they want to restrict other capabilities or you know, based on their business rules, they'll have the ability to set up those rules. And in addition to that, they'll have the benefit of all of the logging and the, the Thunder Green logs that we get out of this kind of capability. So it, it's going to be a, uh, it's a benefit all, all around. You touched on they also get the granular policy control. It's really down to the user in the URL. So now they have the ability to say, you know, this user, that user, you know, a group of a function of users, a location can access, you know, now it's not just a domain, it could be as low as, you know, one specific video. And that's an interesting, you know, capability that the department gains. So Sherry, you, as the program manager, uh, all the weight goes on your shoulders now, I guess, to a certain extent. Uh, What does your rollout plan look like? Uh, Obviously, three and a half million people, give or take, across the entire DOD. Is there a, okay, we know we have it at this part of the Navy, we know we have this part of the Army, and we know we have this part of the Marines. So we're going to start kind of expanding out from from wherever you're at within that specific service, or or what's the what's the strategy look like? We're going to start with those who have already indicated their their interest. We know that because of COVID, folks have been waiting for us to hit production to come on. So we have our first couple of hundred thousand users who will probably come on in you know, the next several weeks, then we'll start addressing, we have a lot of the services who would like to come on. And that really takes us through probably this year and much of next year. We have a lot of smaller organizations uh, in the two to 5,000 range that we can easily kind of work in in that time frame. And so we're just looking at who has the interest right now and what capability kind of we have resource wise and we're working through it and as our emerging technology directorate we're also working with our um, cyber development directorate for sustaining cbii for the long haul so there will be a program transition and we're working with that team to really have a life cycle schedule 
for CBII. So not just the migrations and the onboards, but also some of the capability that we um, are adding in production. And that's you know, gonna be worked with them as well as with the vendor because we have that OTA that we're able to flexibly add capability that we've discussed and that our mission partners have said need to be requirements, but we haven't you know, fully refined. One thing to kind of add on top of that as well is, as Sherry talked about the, the onboarding process that we're going through, one of the things that we were able to test as part of the prototype was how rapidly could we onboard an organization. And so um, uh, there, was, there was one back in, I guess it was beginning of April, there was an organization that we brought on. Uh, they were in desperate need of, of a solution like this. So we, we were able to bring them on and, and we had done some testing up front with them. So there was some precursor work, but what it allowed us to do is within the course of about three days, I believe it was, we onboarded 60,000 users. Uh, and from the mission partners perspective, things went remarkably smoothly. We had a, an introduction packet and, and basically some introductions with the users and said, this is what you're going to see. This is, you know, you're going to be prompted for an authentication before you browse to a site, that kind of thing. Just the one time, the first time that they log in. So they got all of that, but we were able to roll out 60,000 users in the course of just a few days. I, I remember sitting there in front of the console and just hitting refresh and just watching the number climb, 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 climb. And it was a, it was a very fulfilling day uh, at, at some of the height of the, of the early, um, you know, the early days of the COVID crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I think it also for us, just as motivation, it provided us a line of sight where we could see really what we were doing with CBII and how it was impacting our end users and what a difference it was making in them getting the service that they need and being able to you know, do things like telehealth or better command and control or you know, things of that nature that DOD really needs. And we saw where we could onboard them and they were able to you know, hit the ground running. Well, it's a good segue to talk a little bit about what's the future going to look like. I appreciate the fact you guys are thinking about the full life cycle. You can't just set it and, and hopefully, you know, five years return or 10 years return back to it. What does success look like? How are you going to measure success? This platform gives us even better ways to measure success than I think what we had previously. So there's going to be a lot of the traditional means that you would use otherwise with a regular proxy, with bad URLs clicked, uh, those kinds of things, malicious downloads avoided, that type of stuff. One of the other interesting statistics that we've been able to get out of this uh, is actually URLs that were good at time of click, but within a period of time after that, go bad. So a lot of these products depend on reputation filters, right? So a lot of the proxies depend on reputation filters. So, you know, is I, I go to whatever my URL is, what's the reputation? Oh, it's got a strong reputation. Go ahead and move on. But those are very much point in time sort of sort of things. So uh, if you have a site that goes from good at time of click to bad, perhaps it was actually bad at the time that the user clicked on it and the, the reputation filters hadn't caught up yet. And the benefit here is we're isolating the traffic. So, okay, it was bad. Well, uh, we prevented the user from, you know, actually downloading any of that code to the endpoint. So if it was bad and trying to do something, uh, it's, we're not as concerned. But we have much more fidelity in terms of our logging and the ability to tie that back to an individual. So we'll know, you know, if something does happen 
and it does get through, we know specifically, you know, where the user is, what the endpoint was, that kind of thing. So, so much more fidelity and, and, and better ways to measure that, that success. So obviously we all want, you know, zero intrusions, you know, that's our goal. Uh, and, and we'll have many more metrics to be able to measure against that moving forward. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guests today are Steve Wallace, the Systems Innovation Scientist at the Defense Information Systems Agency, and Sherry Sokol, the Cloud-Based Internet Isolation Program Manager, also at DISA. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Steve Wallace, the Systems Innovation Scientist at the Defense Information Systems Agency, and Sherry Sokol, the Cloud-Based Internet Isolation Program Manager, also at DISA. Let me broaden our conversation a little bit. How does the CBI fit into DISA's you know, broader cyber strategy? We're actually working through that right now as, as it does change a lot of the, 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 the systems and the services that we have on the ground right now. And they, they, they can evolve. We've, we've integrated some of them in with, the, with CBII itself. Like I mentioned, you know, all downloads go through our traditional stack. So not only do they get ex- inspected by the CBII vendor, but we also inspect them within the traditional stack too. But it's also allowing us to pull a lot of traffic off of those traditional stacks because the regular browsing doesn't necessarily need to go through them, them anymore. So, so we can optimize them to be more efficient with respect to dealing with downloads and, and files and that kind of thing. They're not trying to, to you know, work through a, a style sheet load or a, you know, just traditional HTML. So CBII is becoming a, a new cornerstone in terms of our defense. And then we're working to see how the other things sort of play into that. I mean, the, the next thing potentially on the horizon for us is looking for, okay, how do we do something potentially similar with email coming in from the outside, right? We've, we've attacked the browser. Email is another significant vector. Um, how can we use some of these same things? Could we remotely render attachments so that the attachment never comes to the endpoint? Can we do, you know, these, we're starting to think through in terms of the strategy, how does this type of technology, not just a, a, apply to browsing, but how does it apply to the broader set and the mission uh, that we have in terms of cyber? Time and again, when I read the, you know, Federal Information Security Management Act, the FISMA report to Congress, and, you know, there's a lot in there, but, but what always stands out to me is, where the threats are coming from, where are agencies having the biggest trouble, and email rem- remains one of the, the biggest areas. So I could see that as, as the next one. Were you down that path with a potential prototype, a potential acquisition strategy, or is it just in that what's in the sandbox and then we'll see, we'll go from there? It's sort of what's in the sandbox right now. It's been in the back of our minds throughout actually this entire CBII prototype. That has been in the backs of our minds. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we focused and didn't scope creep too much and try to drag other things into to the CBII prototype because that, that's always dangerous. So we wanted to make sure that we, we delivered on that. And then meanwhile, keeping in mind what was potentially coming with email and, and that kind of thing. So that, that is one of the areas that we intend to start focusing on next with this type of technology. And then what else, Steve, are you, is your office working on uh, as the merging technologies? There's a ton of them out there. So what's one or two or three other big ideas or projects? One of the things that's, that's near and dear to Sherry's heart here is our, our work with blockchain. So we're looking to see how we can uh, potentially leverage blockchain or distributed ledger type technologies with uh, logistics systems. So we've, we've got a mission partner in the department that's expressed interest in that. And so we're, we're working through that one right now. So hopefully within the next 
uh, six months to a year, we'll have a, a bit more to show on that one. Another one is that's really super hot right now is everyone's heard of, of what the department has done with the CDR uh, environment, the Office 365 based environment. And, and that's sort of brought to light the fact that the Nippernet is changing, right? So prior to we were starting to look at this in the fall, but it definitely got a lot more eyes on it once COVID hit. And what you traditionally had is you had Nippernet, which was this bubble where the data and the users both lived. And so we, we had all of that contained within Nippernet. Over the last few years, we've started to see the adoption of, of SaaS type services and IaaS and, and cloud in general. Um, but that data is moving out, not necessarily native to Nippernet anymore. It's attached, but it's, it's moving out and about. And then post-COVID, we see that our user base actually probably went from 95.5, 95 on Nippernet, 5 off, to 5.95. So now we've got a large contingent of the user base, and they're all VPNing back in, which isn't terribly efficient in the long haul. So we're starting to look at, we had, we had partnered up with uh, Defense Innovation Unit and started to look at some software-defined perimeter-type technologies we had done that last fall, but we've accelerated that work. And I, I think what we're going to start to see in the very near future and something that we are working very hard on right now is how is the perimeter changing and, and how can we look at some of the, adopting some of these type of technologies to create an outer bubble, if you will, and then still maintain our, you know, maintain Nippernet, but, but accept the fact that, that it is changing. Other than that, we're, we're looking at some BYOD technologies. We call it a VMI, a virtual mobile experience. So for BYOD type of activities where we remotely project uh, a session to, to a mobile device, of a person's personal device where nothing is kept on that device at all. So those are just a few of the things. The, the really great thing that, that we've seen is as we've moved into this COVID situation, uh, the team has continued working very hard and, and to bring capabilities you know, out. Our main mantra within emerging technologies is, is delivery. We're not looking for the really far, far, far reaching stuff. We, the department has DARPA for that. We're supposed to be a little bit more near and, and, and closer to reality. And, and that's one of the reasons why we're so excited about CBI, because we've been able to envision it, build it, deploy it, and now transition it into a production capability. Plenty to follow up with you there. And, and then finally, we're just about out of time, Steve and Sherry. So what's the goal to share this CBI with other agencies, with other, maybe the Intel world, with other vendors? Because obviously it's a tool here that it's not, it doesn't just apply to DoD, but really anyone can use it. We've gotten a lot of interest from other federal agencies in terms of adopting this type of technology. That was during our prototype, and, and we hope to continue those conversations with them. We've, we have gotten a tremendous amount of interest. We've also talked to a number of corporations that have expressed interest in it. And, and to be frank, we weren't the, necessarily the first ones. We are, the department is the largest now, but we took the opportunity to talk to a number of corporations as we were looking at the technology. So we're happy to pass that on and, and share you know, what we've learned, just as you know, other organizations have shared with us what they've learned. Are very nice. There's so much more to talk about, but unfortunately, we're out of time for today. So let me thank my guests. Steve Wallace is the Systems Innovation Scientist at the Defense Information Systems Agency. Steve, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Jason. And Sherry Sokol is the Cloud-Based Internet Isolation Program Manager. Sherry, thank you so much for taking the time as well. Thank you so much. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.